Hi everyone, welcome to Resistance Recovery. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. Welcome, everybody, and I am very excited to have this week's guest. I have Kent Dunnington, who is a professor of, is it philosophy or theology? Philosophy. Philosophy at Biola University in California. He is the author of Addiction and Virtue, which some of you are aware of from the, from the group, and he is going to uh, share some of his insights with us. So I, I guess I'd like to start with asking, how is it that you came to write a book about addiction? Good. So I, um, like many grad students, uh, was casting about for a dissertation topic. <laughs> and um, it's sort of a confluence of events. One of the most important ones was uh, that when I was in graduate school, I should say when I, when I went to graduate school, I had sort of abandoned my faith. I had been raised as a Christian and had some experiences in college that led me to sort of declare that I was no longer a Christian, which was a painful experience, especially in my family, which is an intensely religious family. And so I went to study philosophy in grad school. And I think like anyone who's raised in a deeply religious home and then sort of leaves that tradition behind, I had this kind of vacuum of meaning. And uh, so on the one hand, I, I couldn't bring myself to believe that Christian doctrines were true. And yet I had this deep yearning for meaning and a sense of purpose in life. And my, the person who ended up being my mentor in graduate school was a man named John McDermott, who was a, a pretty well-known um, philosopher, American philosopher who was a great scholar of William James and John Dewey and uh, sort of that tradition of classical American pragmatism. And he was also a recovering alcoholic, had been a severe alcoholic, nearly died, uh, and had been sober for about 15 years when I came into his life. And so we talked about all kinds of things. He was a lapsed Catholic, and so he had deep religious sensibilities, but he was uh, agnostic. And um, he kept talking to me about AA and about um, how that had become his sort of spiritual home. And I didn't have serious addiction issues then, although I was a cigarette smoker. And as someone who was a really disciplined person, I've always been a very disciplined person. I was a little bit baffled by kind of the grip that smoking had over me. I tried to quit a lot of times and failed. And it was just one area of my life that no sort of program of discipline could seem to get control over. So I was, I was you know, thinking some about addiction but I went to AA not because I thought it would help me quit smoking, but just because my mentor kept talking to me about this was his spiritual community. And also just, I thought if invited, I should go. So I started going, I went with him and the very first time I went, it made a really powerful impression on me. I think anyone who was raised in a sort of um, uh, revivalist Christian tradition like I was will feel strong overlap 
overlapping sensibilities in a serious 12-step group and sort of the revivalist mentality, incredible honesty, incredible vulnerability, deep soul searching, tears, um, a kind of also even just the, the people who are in the room, the, the sense that this thing that they were committed to overcame all boundaries of class, race. Um, you know, there was a mechanic sitting right next to my professor, this elite academic, and this, this common pursuit brought them together in a way that was beautiful. So I think, I think I was attracted to AA in a sense because it reminded me of the sort of the best of the church. Um, so I had that experience. I kept going with him from time to time to AA and it was, I had this fascination with why it worked, what its power was. I also had this sort of ongoing struggle with, um, you know, nicotine. But then um, later in my education, I sort of left behind focusing on classical American pragmatism and dove into the virtue tradition, really dove deeply into Aristotle and Aquinas, was thinking a lot about habit and about uh, how sort of attenuated the modern understanding of the category of habit has been. And so when it came time for a dissertation, something sort of clicked into place. And I had this fascination with why AA works. I had this sort of philosophical perplexity about the way that addictions are described in contemporary discourse, the power that addiction has over our life, and this whole new category of thinking in terms of habits, in terms of incontinence and continence, vice and virtue. So I talked to my advisor, who was a different person at the time. I had actually gone on to seminary and my dissertation was sort of co-directed by, um, by John McDermott, who was at Texas A&M, and by Stanley Hauerwas, who was at Duke. Cool. And so I ended up talking to, to Stanley and he said, this is a dissertation that you know, needs to happen. And so I, I dove in and started to really think and write about it. So, you know, the way you, you phrase the, the, the addiction debate, uh, will and disease, you know, to me, the way I talk about it is, you know, there's this false binary. And in the middle, you put habit, um, which for a lot of your readers, myself included, um, you know, it's pretty arresting especially when you start unpacking habit, um, that a habit is not, you know, me pulling off my nails during an interview. <laughs> um, it's something deeper than that. So could you break that down for us a little bit, the, this philosophical or Thomistic idea of habit? Yeah, sure. So, um, by the way, can you hear, am I coming through? Clear enough here, Piers? The um, audio is coming through. The visual is a little shaky. I'm sorry about that. I've got some sort of backup going on on my computer, and I'm trying to, to pause it because it can sort of wreak havoc with things, and I can't seem to pause it. Is this something that you can cut out, or should I just plow just ahead? Just plow ahead. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah. So, the the Thomistic category of habit is um, 
it overlaps with our notion of habit, but it's much broader in some ways than our notion of habit. So if I ask, just to give an example, if I ask someone, you know, the, the man on the street to, to give me a list of habits, most of what they would talk about are probably what we would think of as um, motor habits um, or as like ticks. So they might talk about, you know, I have the habit of tying my shoe. I have the habit of tying a tie. They would think about those things which they can do without the intervention of discursive reason. And they think of, ha most people think of habits as primarily um, sort of bodily ticks or that sort of thing, which is true. Um, but they don't, we don't tend to think of, um, of habits as things that deeply uh, shape our emotional life and our intellectual life. So just to give an example, I mean, I imagine that if I ask someone to give me a list of the top 20 bad habits that people have, they would put down things like picking their nose, interrupting others when talking, so on and so forth. But probably racism wouldn't be on the list. Um, and that's because we don't tend to think of habits as um, any as, as something that is deeper than a sort of bodily pattern or a motor pattern. But I would suggest that the best way to understand um, the pattern of activity that we call racism or, or the pattern of activity that we call something like etiquette or tact or being well-mannered is in terms of habit. Because um, the, uh, the habit of tact, let's just say, is this extremely complex ability that a person has to interpret social cues at a subconscious level without bringing them to mind, to respond in the appropriate ways to those cues, and to do so without exhausting our very limited reserves of willpower. Um, so I sometimes give to my students an example. Uh, suppose that you went to, a, you were going to a dinner party, and I said, you know, I will, I will give you a thousand dollars if for 30 straight minutes, you can violate every known rule of social etiquette that you're aware of. So you chew with your mouth open, you interrupt others when they're talking, you spit food in your napkin, you burp. I mean, if you can do that for 30 straight minutes, I'll give you a thousand bucks. And I suspect no one could do it. And that's because the minute we cease from exerting our vigilance and willpower to act against the patterns of tact, our deeply entrenched habit takes over. And we interpret the situation, we respond to its cues, and we do exactly what we've been trained to do. So something like tact or racism is, is an example of what Thomas thinks of as a habit. And a habit is a disposition to act in a certain way on cue in a way that is intelligent in securing certain goods. And in some ways, it's that latter part of Thomas that I think is so important. We often think of habits as just sort of random bodily uh, dispositions. But what a, what a Thomas means when he talks about a habit is a disposition towards a certain behavior that achieves certain difficult goods. And so when I started thinking about addiction as habit, the thing that it really opened up for me is what addiction is good for. And, you know, we talk a lot about what addiction is bad for, as we should. Addiction is bad in so many ways. But the reason that it has such power over us is that it achieves for people 
or addicted persons. It allows them access to certain goods that are, in fact, really hard to come by. It may be especially so in modern life. Yeah, my um, clients, you know, I'm certainly stealing this from you, but when I'm working with my clients, I'll often ask them whether or not was that period of time, which could have been just months, when they were really, you know, hitting their stride with their drug using, meaning socially integrated, having fun, not getting in much trouble, sensual pleasure, so on and so forth. And was that not the best time they ever had in their lives? And they invariably raise their hands and say yes. And then, you know, I point out that one of the more daunting sides of recovery is that we're going to give you something in lieu of that. You know, that will satisfy. <laughs> yeah. And you really sound like a bad salesman mm -hmm. when you do that, or if you do that lacking skill. Um, so I That's think it's, right. very, it's very good to bring it back to that, you know, really real level with them. That, you know, we understand that you wouldn't be here if that stuff didn't do something for you. Um, That's right. Can you talk about these moral goods more, though? Like what, I mean, I kind of named a couple. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, so I think another misconception that uh, it's easy for people who haven't struggled with severe addiction, particularly to a drug, but also, you know, probably to a process like gambling or pornography. It's easy for people to assume that the addictive behavior is primarily about sensory goods. So it's about a certain kind of bodily pleasure. And um, no doubt bodily pleasure is important in the entrenchment of just about any addiction. Um, but I think it's at most, it's usually just a gateway. And I think in most descriptions of a person becoming addicted, if you listen closely, the kinds of goods that addiction makes accessible to them are not primarily sensory goods. So I think I, I give several stories in the book, or I just relay several stories from the big book where people talk about their first experience with alcohol. And um, one of the things that happens a lot with people's first experience of alcohol um, is that their sensory life is actually kind of messed up. I mean, they end up blacking out, they end up throwing up, extremely hungover. Um, and yet, despite this sort of sensory misery or at least uh, discomfort, something else happened in the experience of that drug that made it absolutely worthwhile. And usually the, the number one thing that people say is, for the first time I belonged, or for the first time I felt at home in my own skin. Those are two sort of refrains that you hear over and over again in the testimonies of addicted people who are talking about their drug choice. So there's this sense of finding a psychic home in a drug that makes all of the other costs of addiction seem worth it. Um, so I wish I could, if I had the big book here, I could just pull it up, but there's this one really striking story where this, this person says, you know, 
It all started for me when I raided a liquor cabinet on a sleepover at my friend's house in high school. For the first time, I felt that I belonged. Uh, for the first time, I felt comfortable in my own skin. I, I threw up, blacked out, and was hung over the next day, and I knew I would do it again the next night. There's a description. of This isn't about sensory good. This is about a moral good, uh, a moral good of friendship, of belonging, of community. And then there are other goods that I think um, that go even deeper. So I, I talk in the, in the book about how I think that modern, you know, post-enlightenment, um, modern folks who live in, in a sort of modern capitalist society are especially prone to addiction because there's something about our society that has created more, a greater sense of fragmentation in our life and sort of incoherence in our life. And partly because of my Christian convictions, um, I think that we're created for a sense of purpose, for a sense of um, coherence. And in societies where a sense of purpose and continuity in a person's life has been deeply disrupted, um, I think we'll find that addiction has a special power there because uh, one thing that addiction can do is bring a kind of continuity and coherence to your life. You know, there's a thinking of the um, William Burroughs, uh, famous uh, addict who wrote the book junk he talks about his whole life measured out in eyedroppers full of morphine solution now sort of to, to the non-addict there's something sort of appalling about that but there's also something beautifully simplistic about that yeah. and to know that your whole life is organized by this one activity that can make sense of who you are of who your in-group is and how you should structure your day provides a kind of organization that is a deep moral good that is often lacking in, in modern life. I can say more about that, but I'll leave it there for now. Well, I think you nail something um, there. Uh, in the book, you talk a bit about, you touch upon the confusion around freedom versus choice and that the humans yeah. contemporary society are just marauded with consumer choice. Yeah. Um, but the thing that's really provocative about what you do, so, you, you know, in my, to my thinking, you belong to this group of thinkers, including Bruce Alexander. Um, also, I would put Mark Lewis in there, the guy who wrote The yeah. Biology of Desire. Yep. And what you're doing, though, is you're, you're starting to point at what was going on before that guy took that, raided the liquor cabinet. And what's interesting about the culture of Alcoholics Anonymous, there is a taboo, or there's a, maybe taboo is too strong a word, but there's a, there's a certain social pressure about how you talk about that time. Mm. So I myself did this a million times. I'll say, um, you know, my parents loved me, and they were married for 50 years, and it was expected I would go to college, and so on and so forth. And there was something perverse in me that chose to go down this road. Mm. And when I was saying something to that effect once uh, at a dinner party or something in front of my wife and her jaw just dropped. <laughs> and she's like, what the hell are you talking about? Mm. That's not, your childhood was, you know, madness, which it was. Mm. Um, mm. And so 
there's this thing that's sort of baked into AA, which is kind of this Horatio Alger, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and become adjusted to the normal. You're the abnormal one. Get readjusted. Recovery is about getting readjusted to the normal society. Um, what's interesting, interesting, coming back to our conversation before we recorded, was I noticed that if you take that narrative into the prison, those guys are like, you know, they're yeah. they're, they're offended. Yeah. Um, so this is a this is a this is a paradigm shift that I think is beginning to happen because of sensitivity to trauma. And because virtually wherever you're located in American society now, you're saying something's really wrong and it's getting much worse, that this is causing a dissonance in, in AA. Um, that's, really, that's really interesting. And it's, it's helpful for me to hear you put it that way, Piers, because it sort of crystallizes what I think are some things that unite people like Bruce Alexander and Mark Lewis and me, another person I would put in that category uh, who's probably, who you may be not familiar with, but hopefully will become familiar with this Anna Lemke, who's uh, the director of um, the addiction recovery program at Stanford university. She wrote a book called drug dealer MD, which is about the opiate crisis. And she's just now working on a book called dopamine nation. And she's cued into this stuff too. Um, but sometimes, you know, I thought the thing that unites us all is a sort of suspicion of the disease uh, model of addiction. And I think that's true. But there's this additional thing that's going on, too, which is a rejection of the addicted person as the primary subject of addiction. You know, Bruce Alexander is really big on this, that really addicted persons are symptomatic. They're symptoms of a kind of addicted society or fragmented society. And um, that's something that I agree with you is a bit foreign in AA. It's, um, it's, there's, I think, a, um, a tendency towards a kind of Pelagianism and individualism in AA yes. that, um, that isn't good ultimately and, and, and doesn't track the way addiction and recovery really work. So I've never really formulated it in that way, but I think you're right that um, AA tends to not want to talk about the addicted society. Uh, and probably part of that is because alcoholics are rightly keyed in to the temptations towards self-deception and blaming others that come with uh, addictive behavior. Right. But we have to be able to talk about the way that our society shapes people and primes people for addiction if we're going to, you know, change um, the way this story is unfolding. Well, it, it changes the narrative, too, within the, the church setting or the theological setting. Um, you know, a lot of the people who, they, if they're to be true to themselves, their narrative is going to have to incorporate um, a trauma history, especially women. Yes. I think you cite Plantinga, who talked about the category of tragic sin, perhaps, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, which I'm, I'm really want to explore further. Um, and so, you know, 
here I am, I'm hot off this, I'm on fire from this 12-step experience. I go to seminary, and of course, reading Paul, reading Augustine, I'm seeing, you know, seeing it all. And so it's very easy to read the big book and say, well, every time he uses selfishness, he's really making reference to sin. And so, you know, you get this whole sort of spiritual anthropology that goes with this and this whole thing. And then you come across a, a Bruce Alexander who's saying, well, wait a minute, you know, it's getting worse. It's getting worse in developed societies. It wasn't even there in intact indigenous cultures. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what is this thing? And so, you know, you, you have this dissonance all of a sudden of, you know, I'm working comfortably with, I'm working with my selfishness, my sinfulness. And now you're saying it's, you know, social. Yeah. Um, fortunately, and I, 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 this is one of the things I love about Alexander is he digs out, um, uh, there's a guy named Ignacio Martin Barrow. Have you ever heard of him? I have not. He, uh, liberation psychology. Huh. He was a Jesuit who was down in El Salvador, influenced by those guys, and he is a martyr. He was murdered in 1989 by a death squad. Wow. And he says, yes, there's individual sin. There's something wrong about human nature or something. But there's also corporate or societal sin. And he says what happens, and this is his critique of America, actually, is what happens is when um, the leading institutions reward and promote the very worst things in human nature, Mm -hmm. avarice and violence and Mm -hmm. competition. So you can bring these things together. Um, And I think in a way, it's... um, it's not just an avenue for the recovery community. I think it really is an avenue for the church to, to start thinking. Yeah. Um, and, and, and without it becoming, <laughs> this is impossible, without it becoming partisan politics, um, <laughs> which is what I'm really trying to do on resistance recovery because I've got Marxists, I've got libertarians and Trump supporters and hipsters they're all, uh-huh. but I have to be very careful about where the dialogue goes. You know, I have sure. to be a gatekeeper. Sure. Yeah. So I think, I think the, um, the church should be in a good position to supplement, say some of the blind spots of AA. Um, you know, when we think about the, the notion of original sin, we tend to think of, the potentially objectionable uh, aspect of that doctrine, which is this focus on how it's disseminated, you know, and Augustine was obsessed with sex and passing it on through the semen and all this stuff. Um, And I acknowledge it's hard to, to know what to make of all of that stuff, but Christian thought has long been, has long talked about sin as something that's bigger than the individual, that something that is corporate, something that corrupts our social setting in such a way that it makes it impossible for us to be good and to flourish in the way that we're meant to. And so I think churches should be able to address this 
better than they are. I'll tell you one thing that bothers me a little bit about the way that some churches have come to the addiction and recovery conversation. I mean, in some ways, I think AA's power and its popularity is a kind of indictment on the church. I mean, the church should have been able to help. I mean, there's the AA is full of people who could not find in their church uh, the kind of honesty, the kind of acceptance, the kind of love that is essential to recovery. So that's the first thing to say. So it's kind of sad in a way that the church has only really started to wrestle with the importance of thinking about um, intentional, being intentional about addiction recovery by learning from AA, but they have, and that's good. And, you know, some of them just do AA and others have celebrate recovery and all these things. But one of the patterns that I see is it's still something that is largely done as a separate ministry right. um, in the basement for the people in the church who need it. And it's seen as sort of a, a, an act of care that we provide an outlet for the addicts in our midst to deal with their addiction. And something about that is, is just so wrongheaded, you know. Um, and in the book, I use this phrase, I talk about addicts as unwitting modern prophets. And I really think that what addicted people offer us is a chance to look at the kind of societies we've built and the way in which we corporately block people from achieving certain goods. And if we thought about the addicted persons in our congregations at any one time as symptoms of something that's probably wrong with our own culture, you know, or might be wrong with our own culture, then it would change the way, it would change the role that that addicted person has in our church. It would change the way we think about doing addiction recovery. I'm not sure exactly what it would look like, but um, there's actually a book coming out by a guy named Aaron White. I don't know if you've seen this book, Pierce, but um, I think it's just called Recovering Church. I have it right. And it's wonderful because he's, he's uh, locked in on Bruce Alexander. I think Alexander is probably his biggest influence. And he looks at the Beatitudes as primarily a description of the recovered community, as to say of the kinds of practices that need to be in place for a community to be a place where people can recover from their addictions. And so he's really focused on if, unless the church becomes a fundamentally different kind of community, then it doesn't really have anything to offer to the, to the addicted person um, that AA isn't already offering, you know. In your, in your second book, um, the book on humility, you, 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 you raise the question, it's implicit in the first book too, about a lot of what we're seeing happening is because we no longer have um, a shared sense of purpose or shared values. And um, that's, that strikes me as one of the ways that certain, at least certain branches of the recovery community have an advantage because they have a defined purpose and to the extent that they're practicing the 12 steps, they even got kind of an orthopraxis. But, you know, I'm really left wondering, um, it doesn't look like there's anything suggesting that we're moving towards 
and some different horizon of shared values. In fact, it looks like the atomization is actually going to continue for whatever, however long. And I just wondered what your thoughts about that are. I mean, how do you, how can you imagine working with that in terms of not just building spiritual community, but building spiritual community that's also healing of the larger community? I know that's probably like <laughs> the hardest question in the world, but. Yes. Hmm. I mean, are you seeing something like this where things are getting so bad that people are beginning to put down their differences and constructive conversations are beginning to happen, at least in, in the Christian world? I honestly don't feel like uh, I have any insight into this, Piers. Um, you know, I listen a lot to sort of social scientists and people who are trying to make sense of patterns and trends in our social life. And I think there's no question that we're sort of, to use a popular description, we're more polarized now than we ever have been politically. Um, And I don't know. I mean, yeah, I'm sure there's, I know there's a story to be told about that. I have no idea how to uh, assess how bad it is relative to other times. I know we're inclined to, I, you know, I think there are people who have a pretty good grip on American history who can point at earlier times in our history when things were every bit as ugly as they are now. So when it comes to just sort of like saying how bad things are now, I don't know what I know is that I think, I think my, my pri the reason I feel hopeful is because I teach college students. You know, my life is teaching college students. And there's no question that some of the polarization finds its way onto our college campus. And there are, there are things that happen there that are emblematic of um, the polarization in the wider culture. But it's also true that when I get a group of students in a room, and this is true at Biola where I now teach, but it's been true everywhere I teach, that I always start my intro to philosophy and intro to ethics classes with the question, tell me about someone whom you admire and why. And without fail, the students admire people because of their character. They almost never admire people because of their physical abilities or even their accomplishments or successes. They admire people because of their character. And then I have students make a list of the top seven qualities that they think make for a well-lived life, the top seven qualities they think are likely to distort or lead them away from well-lived life. And there's less agreement among those than there would have been, say, in medieval Christian Europe when people would have probably listed the principal virtues and the seven deadly sins and you've been done with it. But even though there's, a, you know, much less shared values, my students still are attracted to people who live lives of character and want to figure out how to do it themselves. And I mean, I have to admit that it's much more complicated to connect them to wisdom traditions 
than it once was when there was an authoritative church and a simple philosophy of life that everyone could agree to. But there's still, I think, something fundamental in my students that gives me hope that like these conversations are still possible. And um, so I'm inclined to be a cynical person. And it's one of the reasons it's a gift for me to teach college students because they keep me from being too cynical. Um, I don't have any prescriptions for how to bring, how how to respond to this kind of polarization. I, I just don't have any wisdom about that. Um, other than just keep talking, you know, be one of those people that won't let the cynicism stop you from trying to seek out common ground. One thing I'll say related to the humility stuff, um, and maybe this is why you asked the question. I do think that one of the things that prevents us from entering in good faith into conversations with people with whom we disagree is it's not only that we disagree with them, it's that our identities are wrapped up in the positions that we hold. And our sense of worth is wrapped up in protecting those positions from being um, challenged. So I tend to think that most of the time what makes authentic dialogue hard is not depth of disagreement, but rather the extent to which my sense of personal worth and significance is wrapped up in my being right about something. So, you know, one of the things that I think, one of the reasons that I think philosophy is so great as a discipline is it just trains us to get more and more comfortable with being wrong, to hold much more loosely uh, our own identities. And um, I, you know, I, I don't know how, how to help people do that other than to hold it up as an ideal um, and to just say, don't we want to be the kind of people who, um, who can disagree and admit we're wrong and it won't destroy our sense of meaning. Do you think that, that clinging that, that to one's beliefs is um, something that you're seeing getting stronger as society becomes more atomized? I do. Yeah. Because because um, there's just to the extent that a society teaches you that you are responsible for creating your own identity, for fashioning it out of the myriad choices that are given to you, and then for defending it with pride against anyone who would belittle it, right? I mean, there's all these impulses in our society that there's no predetermined uh, life pattern that you have to embrace there are many open to you you have to choose it and then once you choose it anyone who would cast aspersions at you or make you feel shame for what you've chosen is not to be in, is not to be entertained at all but rather to be shouted down you know um, anytime you have a society that has trained people to think about their identity in these ways as something that I fashion and then I protect. And I fashion it by choosing my beliefs and I protect it by not allowing anyone who would challenge those beliefs access to me. Um, then this, this problem is going to be worse. And, you know, I don't want to get too political, but, uh, you know, all the stuff about cancel culture and the reaction against the illiberal left and the way that, you know, the feeling is that safe spaces have now so encroached uh, all of our academic space and our political space that 
we can't have authentic, deep disagreement about substantive issues anymore. Now, I'm sympathetic with those critiques, um, and and I worry about the way that identity politics and the obsession with the creation of one's own identity and the protection of one's own identity is bad. It's bad for the spiritual life. It's bad for um, building communities. I understand there are certain good things about it, and it, and I understand that particularly for marginalized groups, often the first step to regaining power is to say, look, this is an area that we're just going to, we're going to put a boundary around and say, you can't attack us about this. So, I mean, I hesitate to wade into this stuff because I know that it's extremely complex, but it is, I do worry that we are, our own identities have become so wrapped up with our beliefs that that the kind of disagreement that's important for growth, spiritual growth, intellectual growth is becoming harder and harder to come by. Yeah, I would say our identities have become precious. Mm -hmm. um, so this leads to the final stretch. Um, so for the audience, Kent also wrote a book, another second book called Humility, Pride, and Christian Virtue Theory. Um, your chapter on <clears throat> radical humility, deeply moving piece of writing. It's really something. And I, reading it, I could not help but feel like it was answering a, a question that's plagued quite a few of us in the sort of big book thumper 12-step world. And that is this. I belong to a minority of people but I have these close friends. I'll give a shout out to Luke and Joe and James. And we all had a comparable experience, which was when we got to a third step, when you surrender your life, you say this prayer, it's quite dramatic. Sinner's prayer, really. We all had the experience, the four of us, of <clears throat> something being lifted and as my friend James says, he felt like for about four months, he couldn't get a resentment if he wanted to. <laughs> and we all had this period of time after this third step that was this um, really blessed, grace-filled time where we were breathing different air and, and, and it didn't last and we all missed the hell out of it, um, but it did leave some kind of foundation inside of us. And we've been mystified as to why does this happen? Why doesn't it happen? You don't know if it's going to happen. It's almost like you can't engineer it. It's a fool's errand, but you still got to share it, you know, all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, when you were talking about identity and radical humility and specifically not having to live in pursuit of an ego ideal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like you were really touching something because um, once again, James tells a story, my friend James, of he's taking somebody up to a third step and he's explaining that, you know, you don't, you don't have to be anything for anybody and you don't have to live in this dissonance between how you feel about yourself inside and what you project outside. And, you know, he's going through all this. And this guy just kind of looks up and he goes, you mean I don't have to do this anymore? Mm -hmm. And he goes, no. And he said, the guy just started weeping. Mm -hmm. 
And yet there was another person in the circle who kind of looked at it like it was the most bizarre thing they'd ever seen. You know? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And the language you use around the ego ideal is you, a few times you say that people leverage that or they use, they leverage the energy of pursuing the ego ideal to just live life. Yeah. yeah. Um, could you just break that down a little bit for us? Because I think that sure. in, a, in a big way, the 12 steps is saying, Hey man, God loves you. You can put that down. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So there's a lot to say. First of all, the, the, the story that you just told the guy who looked over, like what, what the hell are you talking about? And why would we want anything like that? is more or less the way that the classical Greeks and Romans looked at early Christian thought uh, and looked at the way that Christianity elevated humility to a central virtue. It was, why, it was, why would you want that? Why, so you think about classical virtue as prizing what we would call the warrior virtues or the agonistic virtues where I have, an, I have a self and... The goal of the moral life is to make it an admirable, honor-worthy, magnanimous self that is deserving of praise. And so this is very sort of the view of the moral life was one where the whole goal is to clarify and entrench my sense of personal worth. And the Christian ideal of sort of stopping that whole goal and just resting in the love of God was not only odd, but sort of offensive to a certain (laughs) way of thinking about what was worthwhile in human life. So I think um, it's not, you know, it's not just that people are selfish or they don't want to recover. I think when they get that sense in AA that, that this surrender is complete, that you're being invited to a complete surrender, there are plenty of people who I think rightly say like, would that even be a good thing if I could do it? You know? Um, And that's because AA is shaped by this deeply Christian moral outlook where surrendering our egos is the first step towards becoming who we truly are. So there's a sort of false self, true self dichotomy that we find running through all the saints and wisdom tradition, Christian thought. So I think what I'm saying in the humility book is absolutely nothing new. It's there in the desert fathers. Um, and I'm just trying to sort of give a, maybe a more rigorous and conceptually coherent um, model for thinking about it. Um, and what I suggest is that um, most of us live our lives Um, in the following way, we have a sort of ideal of who we would like to become. It's shaped by our possibilities. So it's no part of my ideal, for instance, that I'm going to be an Olympic gold medal winner in the, um, in the hundred meter dash, because that's not even a possibility for it. For me, it doesn't enter into the formulation of my ideal, but in any given time, based on what I think is possible or within reach for me, I'm formulating some picture of who I could be that I think would be worthy of the admiration, love and respect of others that I think would make me great or would make me worthwhile, would make me better than someone else. And it's that whole process, which is, I think is almost psychologically natural to human beings is, is driven by the wish to be 
significant over and against other people. And it's not just the wish to be significant. It's the wish to be significant over and against other people. It's why I think for many people, they say they want grace. They say they want the unconditional love of God. But if it turns out that the unconditional love of God is really unconditional, it's not because there's anything special about them. Just absolutely anyone would get it. It suddenly becomes unattractive, you know? Mm. Um, Like one time I was, I was talking to my daughter and said, you know, God thinks you're so beautiful. And she said, God thinks everybody, beautiful in other words like who cares about that (laughs) um i think lots of us we feel that way about god's love like yeah god loves everybody but i want to be loved because of this special thing about me so i think that we a we we're constantly recalibrating that sense of who we could be that would be worthy and b we then use that the, the prospect of becoming that person energizes us to do certain things, to take certain risks or to engage in certain moral practices that otherwise we wouldn't. So there's this, there's this pattern of projecting an ideal and using the energy from that projection to draw us into certain moral practices. But insofar as that whole cycle is buttressed by the wish to be someone special and significant over and against others, then whenever we don't feel like we're right, we're recognized for, for doing the thing that we thought was deserving of admiration or affection or becoming the kind of person that we thought was worthy of, whenever we feel slighted, we have resentment. And that's why I think when you mentioned being in the grips of the third step and being unable to feel a resentment, you knew that what was happening there was something utterly different. The virtue cycle there was driven by something totally different than the pursuit of an ego ideal. Yeah. And, and, and I've experienced that too, not in the context of the third step, but before I ever became, came back to Christian faith, when I w- would have considered myself an agnostic, I had out of nowhere, totally unbidden, an incredibly powerful religious experience where, you know, I can't really describe it, but it was an intense experience of love being sort of somehow weirdly at the center of the universe I knew that I was held completely within that love and that nothing I could do would change that. And in an instant, I went from being an incredibly self-conscious, um, incredibly inwardly turned, cynical, skeptical, uninterested in other people, person, to being utterly free. Suddenly the world was filled with people who were, profoundly interesting to me. I could care less how I was perceived. I was just like delighted to be in conversation with others. I lost all self-consciousness and much like the experience you described, it started to peter out after about a week and three weeks later it was entirely gone. I've never gotten it back, but I've always known that something happened there that drew me into patterns of living that were fundamentally different from the other patterns. Even if some, even if the external actions sometimes look the same, the motivational structure was totally different. And I do think that the reason I'm so interested in humility is humility only makes sense. The relinquishment of my own ego only makes sense if there really is this other way of being a human where we're powered by the love of God 
that isn't really that that has allows us to release our own need to be important and significant. It's because I do believe that that's there that I have hope of you know growth into humility and uh, that sort of thing. Well, I guess the one thing I'd like to conclude on is you in that chapter you bring out. Um, you enlist the support of one of my very favorite thinkers, and that's Simone Bay. Mm. And how she talks about, you use the term humiliation, she would use affliction, but that we, we, we will, we will go through experiences where we will become unlovable by the standards of our own ego ideal. And yet, not always, but and yet, love will still be there. We will still have love. And mm-hmm. if you just want to riff on that for a minute, it's just a, it was a stunning way. To yeah. The book. Yeah. So, so what Simone Weil says is you put it so well that we will, we will undergo afflictions and humiliations that will degrade us to a point that we no longer feel worthy or lovable and insofar as our own love for others our own engagement in moral projects is as i said earlier generated by the wish to become that person who is worthy of the love and admiration of others the moment those humiliations and afflictions sort of permanently degrade us we lose all of that energy Right. We, we, so you can think about a husband. I've thought about this a lot, you know, a husband who sort of fashions himself as the protector and the provider for his family. And imagine what happens to all of the energy that husband has to go the extra mile for his family when he suddenly is diagnosed with some sort of terminal illness or, um, or is incapacitated and is laid up like, that person will suddenly discover how his own ego has been generating the energy for him to care for his wife. And, and then there's a crisis moment where the question is how to go on loving, how to go on caring for the other person in the absence of that energy that is produced by our ego ideal. And what Simone says is like, love is still possible. And she what she she's committed to the view that that divine love is available for us like it really is possible in the midst of profound humiliation and affliction to go on loving others she embodied this in her own life of course uh, in in stunning ways but i think she thinks that if we can do that if we can sort of risk loving others even when our own ego stands to gain nothing from it we'll take our first step into a totally different kind of love into the kind of love that jesus had for the father and that the father has for jesus this sort of divine complete self-giving love that really is our destiny and so strangely for simone Weil, although she would never wish affliction on others she came to see that her own affliction and humiliation were were the opportunities for in the crucible really for her getting drawn into this divine love um, that 
she thought was her destiny, really. Well, I don't think we're going to do better than that to stop, to finish. So, um, <laughs> okay. audio, video limitations notwithstanding, that was fantastic. Um, on behalf of the community, I really want to thank you. And uh, write another book so I have more reason to uh, harass you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me, Piers. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.